Welcome to the MYP Show, and today you're in for a treat. Today's interview is with Chris Doe. He's an Emmy award-winning designer, director, the CEO and chief strategist of Blind, and also the founder of The Future, an online education platform with the mission of teaching 1 billion people how to make a living doing what they love. He's got over a million subscribers on YouTube, his podcast, his Instagram, his LinkedIn are all thriving, and he's someone who has had a wealth of knowledge to share in this interview. So get ready, take a ton of notes, and let's get into the interview with Chris Doe. We are here with the, uh, the legendary Chris Doe, and if you haven't, uh, if you don't know who Chris Doe is, uh, now you will uh, by the end of the show, and you'll just start to see him around. I am personally honored that Chris decided to come on the show because I've been following him for um, quite a while now, and he has been someone who I've, I've really clung on to, frankly, because of his authenticity and his value that he's able to bring. And I think what you'll see by the end of the show is not only he, he doesn't really just tell you to go and do it. He's not really a, a raw, raw. He is a raw, raw. He has that in him. But what I really love is he's able to break things down and make things understandable in a way that you can consume and then go out there and execute. And so, uh, Chris, just first off, thanks for spending some time with us today. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Hector. Happy to be here. So, Chris, for those of you who, um, for those of us who haven't, um, you maybe aren't as familiar with you, can you kind of catch us up on on your story? You are someone who, uh, I was watching one of your videos today, and you talked about your evolution as, a, as an entrepreneur, and you started off as a graphic designer, and then got into motion graphic design, and then started making like commercials and videos, and you know, it kind of evolved up this chain to where now you've got a studio, but even on top of that, you're, you've got a school, you've got an academy, you've got, you know, an online um education platform that you've kind of started and it's really been an evolution of things. And, and while this, you've got a YouTube channel, you've got a podcast, you know, um, you're on LinkedIn. So all these different things, clubhouse are all over. So can you kind of catch us up on your, on your journey and, and kind of how you got to this place where you are now? Sure. At what point in this story makes sense to share with you and your audience, actor? What do you think? Well, I think what would be great is for you to, to, to start about, um, you know, maybe, maybe at that, at that point, uh, the video that you published today was was great because it talked about your transition from being, you know, uh, running a business where you're not really a public facing facing uh, person, you know, where your personal brand was not really the driver of your business to where all of a sudden you made a massive shift. And now you are in front of the camera and you're talking. And I think that um, maybe picking up from there might be a great, great point because so many people. They, they start a podcast because they have a business and they all of a sudden want to grow their impact or they want to brand themselves in a certain way or they want to achieve some sort of uh, authority or expert status. And I think you started to see some of that or what was possible um, through creating a personal brand. So can you kind of yeah, maybe pick sure. up there and, and kind of start from there? Yeah, I'd love to tell you this in the context of uh, the origin story, my origin story. And I'm going to map it to Joseph Campbell's The, the, the Hero with a Thousand Face faces and so in every story every story that's memorable every story that that survives the test of time that lasts through the ages there's the ordinary world and the heroes in that ordinary world there's a call to action or adventure the hero's reluctant it's called the refusal of the call and then a mentor appears and the mentor helps them to cross the threshold and enter into the new world and after they have some trials and tribulations they come back to the ordinary world returning from the new world to share what they've learned and this is one of the reasons why stories that were told in an oral tradition have survived till today, you know, a couple thousand years later. It's because they were able to tap into that. So my origin story as it relates to the future is is very clear. There's there's a call to adventure or action. There's two of them, and I'm refusing the call. 
And the first call to action or adventure is my wife, having hung out with me in my classes, had it just challenged me a little bit. She wasn't doing this from a place of criticism, more of, is there more for you? Because I see so much here. I love teaching. I've been teaching for 15 years at private art schools like Art Center and Otis. And she just said, you know, you're doing this over and over again. Is there more that you want to do? Uh, can you reach more people? What about the people who can't afford to pay this very high cost of tuition? And it hit me in my soul, but I didn't know what the answer was. So there was a the natural emotional reaction, which is to get defensive, to recede into your cave in your mind, and just to kind of bury it. And I walked away for, from it. The second time I heard the call to action was when my... My friend from Art Center, Jose Caballer, he's like, Chris, let's start to teach people using YouTube as a platform. And that's something I did not want to do. Now, unlike with my wife, he was simultaneously calling me to adventure while helping me to make that transition. So he said, look, I know you're not comfortable doing this. I know you don't want to do this. I'll make it as easy for you as possible. Just get in front of the camera with me. If you sit there and you wait until you're comfortable and when you're ready, then you speak and you tell your story. And he did this in a way that allowed me to transition very seamlessly from, and I say very seamlessly, like in air quotes here, because it wasn't so seamless, from being a person who was afraid to use their voice to be uh, a person who was used to being behind the camera to now being in front of the camera. And it was very bumpy. It was nerve-inducing, nerve-wracking, stress-causing, you know, if I have I probably had a couple like ulcers and a couple of pimples because of that. And I did it and I just kept doing it. And what started out as being a horrible experience for me personally, emotionally started to to become tolerable before it became fun and exciting. And it just went through that arc. So I'm here as a person who's now living in the new world, returning back to the ordinary world, telling you if I could grab my younger self from 2014 and I'm going to say to myself, Start making content. Start sharing your gift, your your point of view, your stories with the world today. So that that's the story. I think a lot of people have that. Um, I love Joseph Campbell. I love that idea because a, a lot of people are when they're looking for content or they're listening to the podcast or on the YouTube videos, they're in that that uh, refusal, right? They don't want to go into the forest and. Um, I wrote that down. That was actually the first thing I wanted to talk about today was imposter syndrome because I think so many people deal with that. And uh, I'm not sure if you've read the book Quiet. Are you familiar with the book Quiet? Have you read? Um, oh, you got it right. It's uh, it's about the power of introverts and uh, the the, uh, the author. Her name is escaping me right now, but it changed my world forever because I always felt that being an introvert was somehow at a, a disadvantage or I, my, my, um, background was in sales training and sales recruiting. And, and so I was surrounded by all of these Uber extroverts. And I thought that that was the way to succeed because all of the people at the top of the chain were these extremely extroverted people. And so I, um, had to, I felt like I had to be someone different in, in order to, to be successful. And so were you, you, you kind of own this introvert part. And I think you, you, you say like a loud introvert or uh, something, you know, where, where, where you own that. And I think so many people, they have this message, but they are scared to put it out there or they're afraid or, or whatever it is. But I think that you've really um, helped a lot of people get over this. I've seen it in your community and stuff like that. So can you talk a little bit about what that is, maybe some ways to overcome it, or, or, or maybe there's someone who you can think of who has overcome it in a, in a way that stands out? Yeah. If you look at the definition in, the, in like um, Webster's Dictionary, and if you look at the dictionary of the word imposter syndrome, 
it's going to say something. And if you look at the word, look up the word humility or humble, it's going to say something that's going to sound almost the same, that there is this strange duality between humility and imposter syndrome. So let's just try to understand that imposter syndrome is where you feel like you're a fake and you're scared that people are going to discover one day that you have no talent and that you're not worthy of the attention or the success. And very famous people suffer from imposter syndrome. Meryl Streep is probably one of the most famous actresses, a most nominated actress of all time. She often exhibits the characteristics of a person suffering from imposter syndrome. On an interview I was reading about this, she had said, I'm just waiting for, the, for everyone to realize that I have no talent. I'm a hack. And then they're going to just finally decide that they're bored of me. And how can the most celebrated living actress of our time think this about herself? Like if you can't get to the top of the mountain, how could you still think this about yourself? Another friend of mine, uh, Mike Winkleman, a.k.a. Beeple, never looks at the things that he creates as art. But his piece of work, The First 5,000 Days, has just sold at Christie's for $69.3 million, million, the third highest uh, auction at Christie's for a living artist. And yet he still says it's just CG crap. And so we're, we're quick, quick to dismiss what it is that we do. And I wonder why that is. Well, if you, if you go into most cultures, especially European cultures, the Midwest culture, they're going to say something very similar. And they hold humility as a very high virtue to be humble, to not to be too big for your bridges or your shoes. Uh, and you don't want to get too big head, too big headed. And we keep saying these things and we drill them into our children. We say it in school. We punish people who, who've learned to be self-confident, self-reliant. And then we wonder why we raise a generation of adults now to carry on in these ideas that they discredit and they don't love themselves for who they are. They don't acknowledge their own achievements and contributions. And the reason, the number one reason when I talk to people that they cite as to why they don't want to do that is because they think self-confidence and arrogance are very closely related. I don't agree with them. Okay, so what we see in the world, we see arrogant people acting a very specific way. They tend to be very loud. They take up all the oxygen in the room, and they want to be the center, the focus, the spotlight. They're constantly talking about themselves. They talk about themselves in the third person. It's just a little bit too much. That, to me, is not a self-confident person. A self-confident person never has to extol any of these virtues. And so we mistakenly couple those two things together, the arrogant, brash personality that's narcissistic as someone who's self-confident. So nobody wants to be that person because that person is annoying. But I think th those are people who are just masking a lot of insecurity and they have to constantly flaunt or flex who they are, their personal achievements, talk about how much money they have, and name drop and, and show off with fancy clothes and cars because they're just covering up for something. So once we have a healthier discussion about what it means to be, uh, to, to have a true sense of self-love, self-acceptance, and true self-confidence, maybe we can right this ship. I don't think it's going to happen overnight. I don't think it's going to be, you're going to listen to this, and tomorrow you're going to wake up and say, bam, I'm going to learn to love myself. But as long as we, we uh, at least throw a little light on this conversation, maybe some people will start to wake up to this, and that this idea of humility or discrediting the things that you do and not taking some pride and ownership of your accomplishments is actually long-term detrimental. What do you say to the people who, who are scared to get their, you know, they're, they're scared of how big their 
their dream is or their their goal or their vision and, and they shrink you know to it. And I think I've heard you mention that your you know you your goal is to revolutionize the education system. And so I've got to imagine that put up against that, if you haven't done that yet, it's very easy to to measure your progress and and potentially to get discouraged. Right. I could see someone doing that or I know that if I've set huge goals, especially in the sales world, you know, if we're not close, there's that measure of disappointment or or discouragement. So how do you balance that? How do you balance the the vision, right? I think Gary B talks about like the clouds and the dirt, right? Uh, you know, what's what's kind of your take on on balancing that long term vision versus you know putting out content today? Yeah, great question. I think there are a couple of things I want to talk about here. I think Jim Rohn said something like, um, "You should be happy with what you have while you pursue all that you want." And so that seems to be uh, opposing ideas because if we say if you have these really big goals, this big mission and you don't get there, do you become saddened by that? No, well, the first part is just to acknowledge what you have, and we all have uh, already a lot of privilege and and circumstances that are, are enabling us to do what it is we do today. Like, for example, as far as I know, uh, we're both relatively healthy. We have the ability to connect and communicate with lots of other people. There's a roof overhead. We don't go to bed hungry. We already have a lot of positive things working for us, and for us not to forget all those things that are here that are working in our favor in concert to support us, to empower us, that's here. But we don't want to just sit here. We don't want to get complacent. We don't want to just say, that's all life has planned for me. There's more to it. And so then we can make these big plans and we can have big goals. And I think it was also Jim Rohn or maybe it was Jack Canfield, I forget who, who said this, where it's important for you to have big goals. And it's not so important that you actually achieve your goals, but the person you become in the pursuit of those goals. So if I set too small of a goal, the potential of my growth is going to be very small. But if I set really big goals, big, hairy, audacious goals, a BHAG, and then it doesn't matter if I fail or not, but the amount in which I change, what I, what I grow, what I become, becomes really important. So I, I want to revolutionize education. I want to teach a billion people how to make a living doing what they love. That means that I have to make bigger decisions now. I have to think on a, on a grander scale. I have to learn at a faster pace. I have to learn to get over whatever my internal demons and fears are so that I can achieve some semblance of this goal. The other thing I want to say is this. like We can get addicted to, to uh, goal proclamation. Like You can go around saying, oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to have this. I'm going to achieve these things. I'm going to do this for the world. And you get that little initial... like. Uh, a release of hormones or whatever, the chemicals that are in your body, it makes you really happy. I don't know if it's serotonin or it's uh, dopamine or whatever, but you get that hit. And that's enough for a lot of people. That's, that's all they need to do. So they have this great big dream, but they have no plan. So that sounds like a fantasy to me. A dream without a plan is a fantasy. My big dream has a plan that... Uh, gives me a pretty clear blueprint as to what I need to do on a day-to-day, quarter-by-quarter basis so that I can get closer to my dream all the time. I'm working on it. One of the reasons why I'm having this conversation with you is you bring a whole different audience, a different community. You're live streaming this. There's going to be a podcast with video, and you have an audience. I want to tap into your audience, and maybe I can reach out to 5, 10, 1,000 new people who are going to hear this for the very first time, and they might get excited about the ideas that I'm sharing. I'd like to transition. You know, we haven't really talked a whole lot about platforms or podcasts or it's, it's been a lot of uh, personal development. And I think that you blend them really well. And um, 
you seem to be at like the intersection, it seems of like, uh, I think entrepreneurship and personal development, I think it's it's, design and entrepreneurship is what you kind of put it as. And so why did, you know, you being a graphic designer, you being an artist, why are these themes, these concepts so important for you now? It seems like, like maybe not the most intuitive thing, you know, if you want to be a better designer, you know, or you want to be a better, you know, have a better brand. These things aren't the first things that come to mind, but why are they so much of what you talk about and so much of what your platform uh, talks about? Very good question. Um, I think there are plenty of resources out there right now for free and ones that are very expensive for you to become better at your skill, your craft, especially in the creative space. You can find, I think, a decent private art school or design school to go to that is relatively close to you. It's going to cost an arm and a leg, but you can do that. There are other independent programs you can go to, online courses, free resources from friends, uh, from my YouTube friends uh, especially, who create all this kind of wonderful content to teach you all those skills. What I've learned in my life is all the skills that you have in the world won't mean a thing if you can't connect that, if you can't share that gift with the world, either by becoming an educator or connecting you with a client who is going to allow you to practice and put into play the theories that you have, your creative thinking. And so what we need help with as a creative community, I think, is to learn how to think like they think. Like my friend Douglas Davis would say, think like how they think. Think like how they think. That's very, very important. And so business people, the people who make the decisions to employ creative thinkers, to to hire visualists, uh, to hire makers, and, and, and everybody that's kind of connected to the whole creative ecosystem, they don't speak your language. And it would be a little ridiculous for you to sit there and think, why don't they learn how to speak my language? Like if you go into a foreign country, if you're dating someone that comes from a different culture, it should be upon you to learn about their culture and to observe those customs. So what do I mean by that? Well, we're really good at speaking the language of design. We're not so good at speaking the language of business, so we need to become bilingual, and that way we can be that bridge and overlap where the creatives live and where the business people live and be that bridge. That bridge is very powerful because you connect two worlds. I mean, I'm a, I'm a comic book geek, right? So there's been a lot of fan theories about the multiverse collapsing on us through Wanda and Vision and all these kinds of things, and the multiverse is upon us. Now, Wanda is a unique being because she's a nexus being and she exists on all universes. I'm getting super geeky here. Sorry, guys. I apologize for that. But think about like what that means. She's one of the most powerful characters in the Marvel Universe because she connects all things. Imagine if that was you, Hector. What if that were you connecting creative people with business people and you were the nexus being? What would that do for you? So I think out of, uh, out of pragmatism and practicality, I think there are so many resources available to creative people already. I'm going to try to introduce the language of business to creative people. I'm going to teach them from my own experience, from the things I've learned, and the things I continue to learn in a real time, uh, in real time, so that they have a shot at being more influential, like creating greater impact in the world through their creativity by learning how to have a seat at the table until you be able to use their voice. Oh wow, I'm overwhelmed, Chris. This is um, this is great stuff. Um, I think one of the things that I, I've been so uh, You've helped me go backwards because I came from the business world and and luckily on our team, my wife uh, is our designer and she's the one who dresses me and she makes sure I look, everything looks good. So I, I defer to her in all things design. But what I've really appreciated is you have 
help me go backwards and to understand the language of designers and to understand um, and, and not only that, but to also, you know, when we're in, in, in pitches and, and, and selling stuff, how to really how to sell creativity or how to sell art in a way that these business people are actually going to understand. And so that has been um, really uh, pivotal for me. I'd love to continue going into the kind of this branding, you know, discussion because uh, you have a, a great series on your YouTube channel about. Um, it was like a, like a reality show about, you know, you went into this brewer brewery and basically redid their whole brand and, you know, from, from ground up, you know, you market research to design, to logos, to, you know, even, uh, their, their cans, right. Designing everything. And so I'd love for you to just talk about what goes into a brand. I see so many podcasts and what's great about podcasts is that it's very DIY and there's no barrier to entry. And you could just, you know, you go on, on paint on, you know, Microsoft paint puts up, literally puts up together, throw up a podcast and, and be done with it. And that's great because, you know, there's no big people, there's no gatekeeper. Right. But on the other side of it, uh, cheapens is the wrong word, but the, the level of, um, of quality or, uh, I don't, I don't know what the right word is, but you just see a lot of uh, lower quality design. And I think it, it is um, detrimental to that show because it could be a great show, ton of value. But if there's a bad cover, a bad thumbnail, no one's going to listen to it. And so I think that, you know, especially with podcasts, you've got like a square to work with, right? You know, there are other places where you can have a little bit more room, but with podcasts, you've got like, like a square to stand out. And so your ability to convey your brand and your essence and all these things, you know, um, are important. So I'd love for you to talk about what goes into a brand or, or when you think about, you know, creating one or starting one or looking at one, like what are some of the things that stand out or are important for you? I think if we're going to take a giant step back and talk about branding, branding is a person's gut feeling about a product, service, or company. That's Marty Newmeyer's definition. I love that definition very much so. So it's a feeling, and you can't control it, but you can influence. The way that you influence somebody's perception of who you are is to show up, consist show up consistently, be clear about what it is that you do, and follow up uh, what you say, the promises you make, so that you don't break your promises. And if you do this enough time and enough people come to that same gut feeling, you have a brand. And so when you're talking about cover art, you got this little square to work with for people to who are scrolling through thousands, literally now, I guess, millions of podcasts. What's going to tempt them to give you a shot? If they're scrolling through and they're browsing through the top 100, 200 podcasts on Apple's um, uh, iTunes or whatever, why would they stop on yours? Is there something there that says that I'm different. Like when everyone's zigging, you want to zag. And so if everybody's using blue, use yellow. Use a different color so that you can stand out. And part of that is understanding what the market is doing and position yourself well against your respective competition. So if you're in the marketing space and you're going to talk about marketing, you should look at the top 100 uh, podcast for marketing according to iTunes and see what everybody's thumbnail looks like. So this is just basic I guess, opposition research, because you need to wiggle your way in there somewhere to stand out. So if everybody's using very linear angular shapes, maybe use something curvilinear, maybe use photography when everyone's using graphics or you go vice versa and you start to understand, like, I need to stand out. So before anybody can even get to know me, I need to be able to stand out so they get a chance to know me. And part of that, too, is that your personality. 
where are you in the artwork? Where are you in the design of your, your of your thumbnail? Like, how do they know that's you? Is there a signature look? And that usually involves colors, typefaces, uh, any kind of image recipe that you apply. It could be that uh, every every person, every guest that's on your show has a scratchboard illustration made of them or, or linoleum, linoleum cut or some kind of vectorized thing that you do. And so it becomes part of your image recipe. So people listen to one, they have a positive association with that one, and they're, they're probably most likely not gonna subscribe right away. But if they see it again, they're like, oh yeah, the last time that person did this, I wonder if their second podcast is good, or the third, or the fourth, and the fifth. And if you consistently show up delivering value, staying true to what your promises are, well, they're gonna say, look, I like this. I wanna join this community. I wanna join this creator in their pursuit of uh, their art and craft. And so that's why, excuse me, that's why nailing some of your brand elements and components are, is really important. And looking at it relative to your competitors is, it should inform the design decisions that you make. One thing I think you also do really well is, um, and I know you charge, you talk about, you know, you charge handsomely for it is the, is the strategy of it. Um, can you, to whatever extent you, you can, or if you can feel comfortable, um, share what goes into extracting a, a brand out of somebody? I think you do a great job of not dictating someone's brand, but actually, um, you know, kind of chiseling away to, to find what's already in there. Can you talk about that process at all? Yeah. Before we can go forward to the future, we have to go back to the past. And so we have to kind of find out the origin story of the creators of, of the company and why they did this and beyond money, why they exist. And you can also approach it from doing a user-centric brand to understand who it is that we champion, whose lives are we trying to impact and improve. And so if you study uh, who a brand wants to attract and, they, and you can find a shared worldview, then you can start to understand them a little bit better, what makes them tick, what gets them up in the morning what, what challenges they have during the day, what failure and success looks like for them. And then you design your brand to align with what their needs are. I, I like that approach. So when I'm doing brand strategy for a client, I'll ask them, who's your current customer right now? Who's your primary customer? Who's your outlier? And who's your growth customer? And by doing four customer profiles like that, we start to get a much clearer picture as to where they are, what matters to them, and where they'd like to be. We deliberately ask them to define an outlier customer so that we don't get confused as to, to totally target them because we're going to we're going to lose if we do. So that helps them to get clarity on, yes, we have some anecdotal data that this is our customer type, but if we go there, they only represent 8% of our market or what we're trying to do. But there's this growth customer, a customer we'd like to have more of, and they exist out here and we don't currently talk to them. So if you look at the upside to one versus the upside to the other, they can make clear business decisions, right? So if you, sorry, a helicopter's going by. Okay, military copter, okay. So if we look at your growth customer and build a user profile around them and do it not based on demographics, but more on psychographics, their beliefs and values, their preferences, their activities and hobbies and interests. If we build it around that, we start to get a lot clearer as to how we need to speak to them so that we can say, like, we are for you. Would you like to raise your hand and join this tribe of misfits or, or, or academics or whatever it is that it's your brand? 
you know how to speak to them, you learn their language. Um, in, in his book, Superfans, um, as, uh, uh, Pat, Pat Flynn, uh, his, his book, Superfans, he talks about learning the lyrics, right? You want to speak the language that your audience speaks. So if they are, they're using a certain kind of slang or they speak very professionally, if you, if you learn to speak their language, you're going to more likely attract them to you. So that, that's kind of like the basic outline of what we try to do when we do brand strategy. So when we say uh, to our client, let's define who your customers are today. Who's your primary customer? The person who drives your business today, the reason why you're still in business. They're like, oh, we, we know this person. And we'll give this person like an archetype. We'll, we'll call this person uh, the, the yoga mom, right? And they say, okay, so we know the yoga mom. This is what the yoga mom wants. There's, so she's the one who's driving our business. And the outlier is like every once in a while, this other person comes in. Uh, let's just call this person the pet lover. And sometimes they get confused because all customers are good customers and we should try to do everything to everyone, right? No, we shouldn't. And the outlier customer is the one who infrequents uh, or, or is an infrequent patron, uh, patron of our business. They, they come in from time to time, but they're not really driving us. And oftentimes you can look at the outliers this, is whenever there's a new technology that's out there, there's the first movers, there's the uh, early adopters, the middle adopters, and there's the late adopters, and then there's the laggards. You can consider your outliers as your late adopter or your, or your laggards. Like they're there, but they're not really that passionate about what it is that you do. They're not really driving anything. And when you announce a new feature or you change anything about your company, they're the first ones to complain. They're the first ones to leave. They're not really that vested in your business or success. But when you look at a growth customer, this is really important. It's not a customer you have currently. You can survey your competition or you can just design a new customer type for you where you think your products and services are in great alignment with them. And then you build a service or business around them and you speak to them specifically. Peter Drucker, the godfather of business management, he's like, a business exists to create a customer. So that's the, that, that's the mindset. Like I'm trying to find a customer for what it is that we do. Who is this person? What do they do? What do they believe in? What are their pain points and challenges? And we try to find those people. One of our, our core tenants of, of our show and, and what we do with our agency, we have a, a podcast marketing agency, is, is knowing your listener. And, and that's what we do is, we, you know, we, we kind of do it by hashtags. We just, you know, are they, are they posting on this hashtag or are they posting on this hashtag? But it's very psychographically based because we try and get, you know, very detailed with those to know that if someone is going to post something with this hashtag, they're, they're going to be a certain type of person. And, and knowing your, you know, we call them listener profiles, it's, it's the exact same thing. It can cross over and, and carry over exactly to that. So I, I really appreciate that. Um, I'd love to jump around a little bit because what I also really uh, appreciate about what you've done is built, um, you've built a studio and now you've got, you've got a team and you've got, uh, you know, a staff and, and, um, you know, a, a varying size, right. Of, of significant size. I think it was what, the way I want to say it. And so a lot of creatives, they're great at their craft, but that shift and that transition from being able to do it to being able to, you know, be kind of a creative director is a, is a little bit of a jump. And it's something that I'm, I'm personally going through, but I know that a lot of people, 
in the podcast world deal with because it's so DIY. They're the they're the recorder, they're the host, they're the producer, they're the editor, they're the distributor, they're the, they do all of it. And and giving and delegating those roles is something that some people like don't even necessarily aspire to because of the headache or because of the challenges that kind of come along with delegating and building a team and stuff like that. And so from a from a creative perspective, what's been your journey in uh, assembling a team and, and becoming a creative director and kind of uh, being the, the floor general as, a, as opposed to you know, necessarily the, the execution, you know, the one doing all the execution? Right. I think it's a different mindset altogether, Hector. I think you can be a great craftsperson and do everything that your company needs from A to Z and do it all. And and you can be very comfortable and happy just doing that. And for a lot of people, that's exactly what they want. And so I'm, I'm here for the people who don't want that, who want to do something more, who want to grow their operation and scale, and also to be able to recapture some of their time. I, I'm also interested in being for people who want to have a succession plan. What happens if you get hit by a truck? Does the podcast end? Uh, if you get sick, if you have to go on vacation, does everything come to a grinding halt? And if you're a one person, a solo operator, the answer is usually yes. And there are ways around it by overbooking yourself and pre-planning and pre-producing all the episodes and releasing them on a schedule. That's one way to do it. But I always believe that we are greater than the sum of the parts, meaning that if I'm able to assemble a team, each one of us contributes to the end product in ways that we could not do as individuals, we can only do this as a group. For example, on our podcast, Greg Gunn's my co-host. He is the one who takes the raw recordings, sends them to an editor, and then does quality control and shapes the, the conversation and figures out if we need to record more or what else we need to drop in there. But then he'll also sit down and write the introduction to give context to the conversation. It's much harder for me because most of the times the people who are on our podcast are friends of mine and I don't have that objectivity anymore. I'm here because I feel like I want to have a conversation with a friend, whereas Greg's able to listen to it with very objective ears, cut away parts that he think aren't true to or necessary to the story and don't contribute in any meaningful way. And then he's able to write an intro from the layperson to say, here's what I got from this episode. And he can do this in a way that is authentic and genuine. So I think we have a better product because it's a, it's a team of a few people putting something together and each person is trying to do the best they can to contribute the best of their craft and their skill to the creation of the thing. And I think the end result is better than what any one of us would have done by ourselves. And so if you want to start going down that path, you just need to learn something. You need to learn that through collaboration, through delegation, through having a shared vision and parameters of what's, what's going to work and what isn't, allows each person to contribute in meaningful ways without feeling that they're being overmanaged or being told what to do. Nobody wants to be micromanaged. I shouldn't say that. Few people want to be micromanaged. I mean, I'm sure somebody out there wants to be micromanaged, so I don't want to make such a broad statement. Well, yeah, I think the, the creatives generally as a whole enjoy the the flexibility that comes along with, with being in the creative space. And so there's always that uh, push and pull of you know giving you know, too much direction or, or looking over their shoulder uh, figuratively too much and then uh, just kind of letting them run with it. We are uh, we're coming up on the on the last little bit here. And so, Chris, um, I just I've got a page full of notes and I, I appreciate this so much. One thing I've, I've been. Uh, we had a conversation on LinkedIn about uh, a few weeks ago about your 
uh, jumping into Clubhouse. And you said, you know, if I'm in, I'm all in. And you have really, um, really taken to it. And so I'd love that's something in the podcasting space has been, you know, all the buzz. People are saying, is it, you know, is it going to replace podcasts is it the end of, you know, I, I don't know that it, it, it's all, I don't know that it's that necessarily because I think that they work together, but what's been your experience or what's been your reasoning for doing it and, and kind of what's your outlook on, on not only Clubhouse, but on these kind of live um, fireside chat uh, apps that are coming out. I know Mark Cuban's coming out with one. And so um, I think that we're going to start to see more of these, but uh, what's been your take recently? Yeah. Um, my general philosophy on social platforms is you're either all in or you're all out. So if I can't crush, kill and destroy, I'm out. And other platforms have popped up. Some have disappeared. Like I, I, I couldn't figure out snap. I tried. I really, really tried. I, I tried TikTok. It didn't, I just don't get it. It's designed for a different brain than mine. I, I totally understand that for a lot of people, that's where they get their growth on. Okay. So I'm, I'm kind of reluctant to join Clubhouse yet. Another app for me to suck away my time and attention, which I don't have a lot to spare. And so I'm in it. And I'm in it like many people at the very beginning. You're resistant. You're, you're, you're not running in it with the arms open. You're, you're going to stiff arm them like a quarterback or a running back just to stiff arm and push people out of the way. So I'm in it, but after a while, I start to realize what's the potential here. If I put on my my educator's cap, right? Like as a as a person who sees himself and defines myself as a teacher, I say, well, what can you do with a platform that's real time? It's bi-directional in conversation. It's with real people, and you have to be able to think on your feet. Well, this sounds a lot like a classroom to me, a lecture hall, and these things I like a lot. So I started to approach it a little bit differently. I want to come with an agenda. I want to have notes. I want to plan. I want to have a central theme. I want to run it with really tight moderation. And I only want to bring people into the conversation when it's appropriate for them to opine or to ask questions. Otherwise, what happens is people come in. um, I don't think they mean this with any malice, but they come in with an agenda. They want to get their questions answered, even though it's not relevant to anything that you've said so far. And they don't really care about the couple hundred other people that are there. They just want to know what they want to know. And if you permit that to continue on, it sets the tone for other people to step on stage and to act in a very selfish way. And so what I try to do is I try to remind people, when you come up on stage, when we prompt you to, remember, this is the topic. There it is. And make sure your statement or question is done with a spirit of generosity for everyone in the room. So they take a deep breath. They get on, they start pitching again. I'm like, no, 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 hold on, hold on. Let's get to it. Otherwise, I'm going to have to remove you because we don't want to do that here. There are other rooms where you can do that. We don't want to do that here. So to me, it's a great place to really reconnect with people, to have a dialogue, not a monologue. Like right now, this is pretty much a monologue because I'll speak and then you'll speak. And there's dialogue between us, but there's not the community the community cannot materially impact our conversation unless you're literally reading their questions as they come in. And so that's very different on Clubhouse. They can shape and change the flow of the conversation. They can get more value and meaning from something that sounded really easy for you to say, but then they can say, wait, 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 let's go back to that part where you said this. I want to know more. So I can't tell you how many times I've listened to some of my favorite podcasts from This American Life to Radiolab to Invisibilia uh, or to Mogul. I'm like, wait, 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 hold on. I want to ask this question. 
There's no room for that. There's no room for feedback. I don't know about you, but there's no place for anyone to write me a comment on a podcast except for on social platforms where the podcasts do not live. So it was a system built for consumption, not for, for dialogue. It was a system built for media creation, but not necessary for learning. And that's why I, as the educator, really connect with this opportunity to help teach and to share and to go deep into conversations and follow the rabbit hole wherever it leads us. And I'm in control of that. And I like that a lot. I really enjoy hopping into your rooms because there is structure and you know that we're going to stay on, on point. And, um, and so I think that you have, you know, going into those so many podcasters, they just, they hop in without any, any structure in there. And so I think, um, that's a great point. Chris, is there anything we've touched on a lot of topics and selfishly guys, if you guys are listening to this or catching this, these have been all the questions that have been brimming in my head as I've been watching Chris's YouTubes and, and consuming his content. Um, and so I, I thank you for that. And hopefully you guys have gotten some value. Chris, is there anything else that needs to be said or uh, should have been said that hasn't, that we haven't touched on today? I'm sure there are a thousand things that we haven't touched on, but I think you asked some really good questions and you gave me the space to speak and I appreciate you for that. I'd love for you to share how people can stay connected. You're all over. It's the future on YouTube. Um, you have an academy. You've got courses. If people want to go in there. You've got tons of free stuff. But uh, where's the best place to, to go or stay connected or where should people uh, follow you? Yeah, I try to make it as easy as possible for you to find me. I'm at the Chris Doe, D-O. You can find me on Instagram, on on. LinkedIn, on Twitter, on Clubhouse. And we have a, a YouTube channel called The Future. And it's The Future was spelt without an E. It's F-U-T-U-R, Futur, if you will, Future. And so we have over 800 videos and we drop two videos a week. So I'd love for you to join the conversation there and to be able to watch and comment and participate in live sessions. Uh, if you want to go a little deeper down the rabbit hole with me, I have a pro community. Join that. And we do uh, two calls a month among other things, but uh, I'd love to see you. Guys, I'd encourage you guys to go get connected and uh, yeah, 800 videos, you could spend days going through it and uh, you'll learn a ton. So Chris, thanks again. And the rest of you guys, keep on, keep on, keep on keeping on. Uh, this has been a crazy year and um, we're just so excited that you're part of the MYP community and we look forward to seeing you on the next show. Thanks for listening to the MYP show. We know that there are a ton of podcasts that you could be listening to, and we are grateful that you chose some time to spend with us today. If you're not connected with me on LinkedIn, just search for me, Hector Santi Esteban. Make sure you're subscribed to the show, and we'd always love for you to leave a comment or rating so that other people can find it as well. We hope you're having an amazing day, that you're safe and thriving, and we look forward to seeing you on the next episode of the MYP show.